0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of Turf Dudes, brought to you by Harrells. This is your host, Jack Harold III. Our Turf Dudes are reaching out to industry leaders and game changers to discuss what they're seeing out there. If you have a topic suggestion or know of a Turf Dude with innovative work in the field we should feature, please let us know at TurfDudes at Today's episode is brought to you by Dr. Jeff Atkinson and Dr. Raymond Snyder as they talk about turf weed strategies with Dr. Jim Brosnan from the University of Tennessee.
1: Welcome to another episode of Turf Dudes. I'm your host today, uh, Dr. Jeff Atkinson. I have joined with me today Dr. Jim Brosnan from the University of Tennessee, a professor now of weed science, congratulations, as well as director of the Tennessee Weed Diagnostics Center. We also have uh, Mark Stovall, Daniel Wilson, our two of our uh, territory representatives in Tennessee, and uh, Dr. Raymond Snyder from Harrells. So welcome guys, thanks for uh, joining us. Thank you, thanks nice for having us on. So, we're talking to uh, Jim Brosnan today about a variety of topics uh, surrounding his expertise in weed science and a number of things that we're going to cover, but before we get into that, why don't you just tell us a little bit about your background, your history, um, and what you do here at University of Tennessee? Sure. Well, I
2: appreciate the opportunity to come on. Um, I'm a huge podcast listener and uh, really just kind of love the format. I think it's the new trend. and uh, communication. I joke with folks that it's like all the best of AM radio, right? So, it's, <laughs> have you done a podcast
3: before? I've done several podcasts done several before. Podcasts, they're they're okay.
2: they're fun to do. So this this is a great format. We great. can kind of have a long form conversation on a lot of different topics, which is cool. But I've been at UT since 2008. Um, I came here from the University of Hawaii. That was my first job out of graduate school uh, at UH Manoa, and that was a rapid introduction into the world of wheat science. Um, Coming from uh, Pennsylvania, where I did my PhD at Penn State, so I I was kind of dropped into the warm season weed control fire pretty quickly, and this has been a great spot uh, at UT. We have a great team here, uh, not only at the university with myself, but uh, uh, Dr. Sirockin, Dr. Horbath, Dr. Samples, who all of you know really well. But we also have a great industry too. You know, folks like Daniel and Mark that. Uh, are out there engaging with our golf course superintendents and sports field managers and and lawn care folks. It's it's a really great state to do work in. And I I know I speak for everybody here, that we're um, super passionate about what we do and trying to really further that land-grant mission throughout Tennessee.
1: Yeah, I know that Tennessee just, in in my opinion, has really done a good job of kind of evolving with the times, the way you guys communicate information, uh, distribute information uh, to the industry abroad. Um, I know you're all active on social media and, and supplying that information in different ways. And yeah, thank you for
2: to... that. I mean, it's 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 been a passion for us to try to do that, and and some of that's been out of need to try to engage with you know the future students that are going to be coming to the university and try to be visible and present on those platforms um, because that's where they are, and we want to be there for them so they know that this is a place for turfgrass education and where they can come and. Get the skills they need to be part of the industry. And, and this podcast
3: is being recorded the day after your successful field day. And had how many
2: attendees did you have? We had 532 people yesterday. We, you know, we got lucky with the weather. We had a beautiful fall day in Tennessee, and it That's was good. it was a great uh, event all around. Uh, we're all real passionate about field day. It's. I like to joke, it's like our Super Bowl. You yeah. know, we uh, we show everything we do that day and the whole world comes and it's just it's fun to do. And we've already started. I've talked to several people since yesterday afternoon about ways to continue to improve it and mm-hmm. tweak it and make it better, and and that's the goal. So it's it's uh yeah, it's a big uh, big check mark for the well,
3: year. For all the for podcast us. listeners, I definitely recommend if you're in this Tennessee area or just outside of it, do the best you can to get here for that field day and as a, pains me as a University of Florida, Florida Gator to really promote the UT Field Day, but it's one you do not want to miss. It's definitely worthwhile, the the trip. So thank you for
2: doing that yesterday. You're welcome.
1: So how about on the heels of Field Day, looking at the overall turf program, how is the turf program at University of Tennessee today? How's the health of that from a research perspective, undergrad perspective?
2: I I mean, I think we're thriving. You know, our, our student numbers are, you know, really high, uh, not not maybe where they were uh, three or four years ago. We've had some graduations, and that's just a new challenge for us to uh, refill that stable. And I'm confident that we can do that. But uh, we've got a really good group of students right now um, on the education side, and we're working to try to further our recruitment efforts and engagement efforts with the next generation of students to come and, and be part of the industry. And that's a big part of what we do here. Um, I think research-wise, you know, we're we're really uh, in a good position. You know, uh, Brandon with his uh, pathology program and mm-hmm. John with his sports turf and turf agronomy work and then my program with wheat science. I mean, there's never a lack of stuff to work on, no. that's for sure. Um, so we're uh, we're really uh, fortunate to have a lot of support from the industry and resources to uh, do what we do. And on the extension side, you know, Tom Samples is a rock star. You guys were at field day yesterday, and we had Tom Samples t-shirts, and he was signing autographs <laughs> like he was a yeah. uh, a superhero and he's just an awesome guy. Yeah, that, was pleasure to be around that was a nice touch yesterday. It's he's he's a he's if you've ever if you've not met Tom Samples before, he's the type of guy that you will leave with a smile every time yeah. you see him. He's just a tremendous yeah. person. So he's he's out there on the extension grind, as am I, and and we're Really passionate about trying to do more of that and, and engage with associations like Tennessee Turfgrass Association, Tennessee Sports Turf Manager Association, Tennessee GCSAA, and kind of synergize all those things to make the uh, state industry as good as we can make it. You mentioned your
1: your research focus of weed science. What specific projects are you working on? What specific problems are you currently working on?
2: Well, we have a joke here. It's POA 365, right? <laughs> we, we, <laughs> we do a lot of annual bluegrass work. Um, that's motivated a lot by resistance issues that have come up in the industry. And as you, as you know, have become more common, uh, throughout the transition zone in Southern U S and there's a lot of need there. Um, you know, there's a need from the helping the golf course superintendent or the sports field manager, the lawn care operator about understanding what's going on. There's an education piece of just What is resistance? How does this happen? How do we mitigate it? And then there's the research piece about solutions. Like if you're managing annual bluegrass in, you know, dormant permutagrass or dormant Georgia, and you have two or three way resistance, what do you do? I mean, that's, that's a very hard, uh, situation.
3: what, What makes this plant so predisposed to resistance? This, I mean, is, is that a fair question to ask? Yeah, I what think is, it's a fair question. What makes POA plant such so a
2: target for resistance management? So, I mean, I think it's, it's, comp, it's a complicated paradigm. Um, I think part of it's an annual weed, so it's going to be a weed every year. Mm-hmm. It's a perfect storm that when our base turfs in Tennessee and southward are at their weakest in winter dormancy, uh, the annual bluegrass plant has ramped up to become maybe at its strongest. Uh, particularly in the spring of the year as we get into March uh, and early April and those grasses are just kind of waking up and coming out, that poa has had a lot of time to uh, get a foothold and, and uh, thrive. And because of that, it's, it is subjected to herbicide applications every single year. And, you know, resistance is really just a selection issue, right, Mm -hmm. that the herbicide is the selection agent and I like to talk in presentations about it's almost like a sieve that, you know, we're sieving out the susceptibles and any plants that come through that treatment for whatever reason, whether they're resistant or not, they remain, they set seed and they uh, become more numerous the following year. And if we continue to use the same sieve, all we're doing is repeating that process to have that increase over time. So are those seeds little clones
3: of the plant that escaped the herbicides?
2: I don't know if clones is the right word, but they're certainly uh, they're certainly of similar genetics, right? And I mean, we could go really deep here about resistance traits dominant versus recessive and some of that varies by mode of action. but at the end of the day, they're in the same, uh genetic makeup that have that mechanism, whatever it is, whether it's a target site mutation or enhanced metabolism or differential absorption or what have you to uh to come through that application. And so how, how many seeds can one POA plant?
3: Uh, I don't want to make anyone depressed here, but yeah, how many seeds uh, can one POA
2: plant create? It, uh, hundreds of thousands. It's yeah. it's and you know, we get the question a lot in presentations about Well, if I have a resistance problem and I I stop using the herbicide that I have selected for that resistance problem for, can I take two or three years off and go back? Mm -hmm. And sadly, the answer to that question is probably no, because when you start thinking about the number of pole plants that are in a fairway, how much seed is produced from one individual plant, the rain of that seed back down into the soil, for a number of years, the bulk of your seed is going to be of that... Uh, makeup and you're, you're likely you'll probably be at a different facility before you have the ability to go back. <laughs> yeah, that's or re- or retire. The seed
1: production. I yeah. mean, it's just it's yeah. crazy. You mentioned a stat yesterday the number of golf courses in Tennessee that have some sort of resistance issues. What was that? What was that number?
2: Yeah, so I, I referenced that it was in a conversation about glyphosate resistance that over 60% of the golf courses in our state have some degree of glyphosate resistance in uh, their annual bluegrass. Uh, and that has been part of a survey project that uh, the GCSWA and the uh, EIFG Environmental Institute for Golf supported here. And this was really fun to do. Uh, we went out. In 2018, we started January 3rd, and we finished by February 14th. The goal was to try to get out and collect plants before the bulk of those glyphosate applications would be made during dormancy. And what we wanted to do was get answer the question, how much resistance is truly out there? Because when we go to these sites, if it's an extension call, well, you're going to a site where you know that there's a problem and that's biased, right? We're not sampling the whole. Mm-hmm. So the idea was let's randomly pick golf courses. So we went to 90 golf courses, 30 in each region of the state. We'll randomly pick those courses within the region. Then we'll randomly pick a hole on that golf course because inevitably when you go visit a golf course superintendent, you go to the worst hole, which right. is not a random sample anymore. Correct. So we randomly pick a hole and then we would walk that hole Uh, And collect any POA that was present at a density greater than 10 plants per square meter Bring all those plants back to Knoxville Collect seed off of all those plants and then screen them for resistance to different herbicides And in doing that what we found was that over 60% had some degree of resistance to glyphosate Uh, uh, Over 50 well over 50% had some degree of resistance to prodiamine the active ingredient in herbicides like barricade uh, and over 20% had resistance to uh, the ALS inhibitor herbicides like Revolver or Monument or what have you. And I actually think that our ALS resistance number is low because we did not do any sampling from greens. And when you think about the limited suite of tools available for polar management on the ultra dwarfs. The ALS inhibitors are a big part of that, and Absolutely. we have a lot of resistance issues on greens that unfortunately we don't really have any workarounds for right now, or I should say very few workarounds for right now. And I think if we captured greens in that survey, we, uh, that ALS number would probably be higher.
1: Do you have a good feel for how many cases of cross resistance, multiple modes of resistance within the same
2: POA plant you might have around Tennessee? We, I, we have two confirmed in our state of multiple resistance, and, and within that survey, that's kind of the next step is now that we have the material collected, we've got these baseline numbers uh, of percent resistance and true true percent resistance. We can go deeper on some of those lines. Uh, we are also part of, there's a nationally funded United uh, you know, USDA, especially Crops Research Initiative Project on this topic of polar resistance in turf grass, which... Uh, Tennessee is part of, along with 13 other uh, universities. It's, to my knowledge, the largest scale turfgrass research project that's probably ever been done, or at least federally funded. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's been funded uh, over to a tune of over $5 million. So, for the federal government to make a investment in turfgrass research to that level is is really cool and really important for us. I think just in the turfgrass community to. To really do this do do a really good job on this project and, and give them a good deliverable and i'm confident we can do that part of that effort is sampling and going out and trying to get answers to the question you're talking about about multiple resistance and non-target site resistance uh, and i think we'll learn a lot from doing that it, it started last year it's a five-year project so we're just kind of got the ball rolling in terms of doing that And the other piece that's really neat, uh, beyond that it's so large geographically, is it is every turf system. It's golf, it's athletic fields, it's sod farms, and it's lawn care. So we'll be able to pick up regional differences as well as kind of industry sector differences uh, about this problem and learn more to help those segments differently. Because as you all know, they kind of require different solutions at times based on... Uh, the areas that they're working. Sure. sure.
3: Are there dedicated wheat scientists who are looking at this plant and trying to better understand the physiology, biology of this plant and look for areas in which the plant might be susceptible to different herbicide categories?
2: Uh, I would say it's more... We're, the whole group is looking at it from... A holistic approach of integrated management because the solution to resistance does not come from a jug. I didn't come up with that quote, Dr. Steve Powell uh, from uh, the Australian Herbicide Resistance Initiative is the first person I ever heard say that, and oh, yeah. I've never forgotten it. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's really true. That when we have these issues of plants evolving resistance, now the solutions are not going to be just chemical, right? Um, right. And that's why it's so important that we can get federal funding to mm-hmm. do that type of work because to learn about the biology of annual bluegrass mm-hmm. and how that's gonna vary geographically or vary by what turf system you're in, that is part of the solution to uh, resistance management and that's the stuff that we need to learn more about. So the, the uh, SCRI project is very multifaceted to touch on those things. One example is we're gonna be starting um, a seed burial project. This is super cool that we're getting um, 10 different populations uh, of annual bluegrass from across the United States. Texas A&M is doing all of the uh, seed propagation and then they push the seed out to the locations that are working on this objective and then we will bury that seed in soil at different depths and leave it in the soil for different amounts of time. So then we'll be able to better understand what is the viability of annual bluegrass seed as a function of how deep it's buried in the soil and how long it's in the soil and that's important and that you know that interlays with things like phrase mowing for example which is uh, a mechanical tool that could be used for annual bluegrass management Um, moving forward there's certainly a nutritional piece to this with uh, particularly phosphorus nutrition and better understanding well what are Uh, Fertilizer regimes coupled with irrigation regimes that can be part of this a project that we are involved in now uh, under the SCRI umbrella uh, that was really fun is Kind of this concept of okay, well If seed rain in the spring is going to perpetuate a potential problem well, maybe there's an opportunity to collect that seed and move it off site or discard it, right? So then we're not refilling that soil seed bank with seed of this plant that is gonna be so terribly hard to control. So the concept was, well, let's go out at certain benchmarks in the spring and we used growing degree days to uh, delineate when those benchmarks were and let's capture that annual bluegrass seed. So we had people out cutting annual bluegrass seed heads with yeah. scissors, <laughs> bringing all of that back to the lab, all cleaning, cleaning yeah. all That's that a good seed. Thing for graduate students. Then, plant, then planting all that seed out. So planting for every single plot, taking 50 seeds of individual, you know, 50 individual seeds on petri plates, oh, germinating oh, that seed. But it's been really cool because now we know that between 700 and 800 growing degree days in the spring, that's when annual bluegrass seed is the most germinable. That that's when you have the highest viability within that population, uh, and we've seen that now at a couple of locations that are involved in this, and that's important because we think now this is a potential window where if I'm a golf course superintendent, maybe I can collect clippings during that window just to make sure right. that I'm not going to regenerate physically
3: that seed, remove physically it
2: remove it rather than. Uh, ride wide open without the buckets on and have that seat go back Dude, into so the So say soil. those growing
3: degree days again? Right now,
2: based on our one year of work, it's it's 700 to 800 growing degree calendar days. Wise, and calendar-wise, when is that usually? Uh, we, I'd have to go back and look. Every year's different. It's yeah. one of the reasons growing degree days is, is uh, so useful. Uh, but that's tracked from January 1st.
1: Okay, so there's no date or just January 1st, once we're coming out of winter, coming into spring, as those growing degree days You just days start accumulate. watching
2: those growing degree days. Gotcha. And, and I think what we'll get to is, you know, repeating this work again for another year multiple institutions, you kind of further refine that window. And then I think where the industry's going is we're going to be, we're going to have alerts, right? And whether those alerts come from the local land grant or another place, alerts to trigger applications, right? That... You know, we've seen this now for a number of different weeds. We have it in diseases, right? The Smith Kearns model for dollar spots been mm-hmm. wildly successful. And I think that's where we're going is more precision management to make our applications, whatever they are, the most impactful as they can be because we're taking out some of that environmental variability. And we have the power today with data to do that, right? Right, Better than we ever have. Yep, and data availability.
1: Um, what other trends in resistance are you seeing? Any other species and uh, goosegrass? I know it's one that. Yep, yeah, goosegrass
2: is is definitely probably if, if Poe is one A, goosegrass is one B. Um, there is a lot of chatter out there about uh, star resistance in goosegrass. We only have a handful of confirmed cases right now, but there is uh, certainly a lot of smoke around that fire, and we have more work to do as a weed science community to learn more about that. Um, my colleague at the University of Georgia, Dr. Patrick McCullough, he's been working a lot on resistance in broadleaf and sedge species, uh, oh, wow. which is kind of scary um, to think about evolving, say, ALS resistance in sedges when, by and large, nearly all of our tools for sedge man- ma- management are ALS-inhibiting right. herbicides. Right. So that that's a scary uh, kind of thing to think about. Absolutely. but that's out there too. And, and you know, it, for us, I think as a discipline, it's about resistance education and trying to make turf grass managers aware that a, this is a thing B, you know, if you have two or three failed applications in a row, don't rationalize your way out of it as, oh well we had we had bad luck with the weather it wasn't mixed right maybe Mm -hmm. my my spray tech didn't spray it right or what have you like you know I I say this in presentations a lot that if you went out Mm. you know sprayed two dollar spot fungicides on your Bencraft green, and you came in and you had a bunch of dollar spot you would do something you wouldn't all shucks it and go on to the next the next uh right the next task and I think in weed science we need to to really do more of that is to to, to educate, to understand if, if you have a failure, that's a, that's a red flag and we need to look further into this to understand why that failure occurred and make sure that it doesn't happen again.
3: So for any particular weed species, how many different modes of action would you like to see that weed species experience in a year? So, I mean, we. Is that a relevant type question? I think, I mean, I think how, so. How and how I
2: don't you? know that it's, it's, a, it's a hard and fast number, right? What, you, what I'm a big proponent of is to kind of put the thought in, uh, in advance about how you're going to do this, to not get into this kind of place of, I'm going to do what I've always done, or I'm going to do what the course down the street does because it works for them. You know, I, I like to tell golf course superintendents and sports turf managers, you know, you are the champion of your own agronomic decisions. You can play quarterback on this. You can create your own program and do this in a way that makes sense for you. Don't let somebody else make those choices. You can, you can call the place here. And you know, one of the things we do at field day, which you all saw yesterday is we try to present our weed management information in a, in a year long approach, say, okay, we want to go from January 1st to the next January as weed free as we possibly can. How can we do that, and how can we do it in a way where we're using mixtures, for example, because we know that mixtures are going to be uh, probably our best tool chemically for resistance management, is to put two modes of action uh, on a weed that um, it's susceptible to, and then rotate those mixtures throughout a season. And I think the fungicide folks do this really, really well. You know, they put the critical thought in in advance to say, okay, what's my what's my program going to be for fungicides to make sure that my turf is, is is disease free as I can possibly do it. And they, they kind of spend the mental capital on the front end to do that. And then they put it into play and inevitably, you know, there's a, there's a Dwight Eisenhower quote that, you know, plans are worthless, but planning is everything. That inevitably we deal with, we deal with a natural system. Mother nature can change the game as we go. But if we put the forethought into having a plan in advance it's easier to make those tweaks rather than being reactive all the time. And so a big push for us is to, you know, put that amount of capital into, you know, build yourself a weed control program, put it in play, and then take notes as the year goes along because then you can make changes. And that's the only way you really get better is trying to be proactive about it.
1: So let's talk proactive. Then we have kind of POA season coming up right around Mm -hmm. the corner for us. and we have customers that are making purchasing decisions in the next few months. Our next couple of months, really, um, as October rolls around, Um, with POA resistance issues to to barricade to glyphosate, what are some alternatives that should and could be considered for September, October, November, into December?
2: Yeah, that's a great question, and again, very timely. Um, What you know, the first thing that I'll tell anybody when they ask me, well, what should I do for POA this year? Is Well, what you should do is not what you did last year, right? Mm -hmm. Like definitely just make sure that you're doing something different. And that can be hard because in many times, well, what if what I did last year worked great? Mm -hmm. It's hard to change it up if it worked Mm -hmm. great. But we know that eventually it will break if you don't change it up. So that's that's probably key piece number one. And then number two, you know, one of the, the, the things that I'm really proud of is, in our program, we we try to take this look at POA because it's such an important weed on a geographic scale. So we do all of our POA work statewide. We do it in East Tennessee, Middle Tennessee, and West Tennessee. And we try to do that because if something comes to the top of the heap in, say, a Knoxville trial, we don't want to go to the masses with it because what if it's not relevant in a different climate uh, across the state? So we really only try to push forward things that come in the top statistical category in all three regions. And that kind of narrows the... Uh, the pool down and what we learned from that last year was that the idea of a one we call it a one-shot POA program is that's that's a thing of the past for a number of different reasons resistance wise you know you can make an argument that our weather is more erratic and variable than before I don't know if that's true but certainly we had a strange year weather-wise this year um, I think we evaluated 17 one-shot programs and that could be a true pre That could be, I'm just going to come in in March and make one application of a post, what have you. I think we had 17 one-shot programs and only three of them gave us 90% control or better across all three locations last year. So what we've been advocating to folks is either come up with a one, we call it a one-two punch program. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to put something into play for POA, whether that's pre-here in a couple of weeks, or maybe that's going to be early post in October or maybe that's a non-selective application in January, it doesn't matter, and then I'm gonna do something else. So we call it a one-two punch program. The classical example is I'm gonna make a pre and then I'm gonna be prepared to clean up anything that comes through that pre with a post. The other thing we talk about with uh, as a strategy is, uh, I like to come up with these metaphors that people can remember, is a zone defense. Mm-hmm. You know, when we think about football, a zone defense is players of different position groups working together to achieve a goal. Well, we can take herbicides of different motive action groups and put them together to achieve a goal. So what we saw last year is by and large, that, uh, that concept, that zone defense concept where we can take two motive action groups and put them into play in, say, late October uh, here in Tennessee, that's an optimal time to really go after POA. It makes sense from a resistance management standpoint with the complementary modes of action. I think it makes a lot of sense from, well, we can use a pre and a post together, for example, in our zone defense. That allows me to start my program a lot later than a true pre. There's advantages to that. The biggest advantage is your chances of going from the start of the program to the, say the master's week, which is where we kind of end our POA season here, POA free, it's a lot higher if you start October 20th than if you start September 2nd, right? You just, it's a short, it's a, it's less of an ask on the program to get to the end of the line if you start later, and there's a lot of advantages to that. If you
3: use a pre and post combination, is that inherently two different modes of action?
2: In most cases it is, right? I mean, we don't really think of uh, a barricade, for example, or a pendimethalin of having post-activity. So in most scenarios, you'd have two modes of action uh, in a mix like that. That's a, that's a really good question. And the other thing I'll say while we're on this topic is, one of the questions I've gotten in the past is, well, why do you care so much about about this weed like why do you care so much about this problem and I'll contend that every, particularly in the golf industry every superintendent in the transition zone so, transition zone southward should care a lot about this because what this really is is this is starting your year off with positive momentum because if you have put the thought in place to say okay I'm going to make sure that I've got my POA Really, like, I'm a POA free. I've got my POA program, and it's solid. It allows you to start the year in a really positive place. And superintendents have tons of demands on their time, particularly in the spring. You know, here, we've got folks that are worried about winter kill and covering greens. And then as Mm -hmm. soon as the weather breaks, people want to get out and play golf. And, you know, the Masters is coming. And it's getting to be good golf weather. And it's all these alligators, right, on the superintendent. Well, if they've got their program and check it's just one less thing to worry right. about right mm-hmm. so like let's let's do the work now yeah. to yeah. make sure when golf season 2020 comes that's just one less thing on your list right mm-hmm. just get you in a really get good
3: proactive in the fall positive so space. that your
2: spring is smoother.
3: less active yeah is smooth, <laughs> smoother yeah, as smooth yeah. as possible right
1: so if someone has a or is questioning they have herbicide resistance on their course um You are the director of the diagnostic or Tennessee Weed Diagnostic Center. Mm -hmm. What services does that provide for a someone who may be in that position that thinks they may have some type of weed resistance?
2: So we we do resistance confirmation. Uh, We don't do it for every herbicide because for a lot of them we don't have tests, or even at the genetic level, we don't know really where to look. Um, That speaks to the need for more research on resistance in uh, annual bluegrass. But for the ones that we do, um, you know, we got a grant from the USGA and they supported an effort to develop a, uh, an auger based assay which is essentially tissue culture, if you will, uh, where we can take any bluegrass plants from a golf course and expose them to a discriminatory rate of herbicide. And because of the nature of the setup, uh, we can get a read on susceptibility uh, pretty fast, like I'd say 10 to 14 days uh, for something like glyphosate or one of the ALS inhibitors, uh, so that's been useful. And that, you know, that whole diagnostic center thing came out in need. Uh, you know, our first report of herbicide resistance in Poa in Tennessee was in 2012. And it's funny. It started. I was on an extension visit at a club, and they they were going to renovate their greens, and we were there. We were there talking about root zone construction and black layer, organic matter buildup. Go through the visit, really nice visit, walk into the truck in the parking lot. The superintendent goes, Hey, have you ever seen Roundup not kill Paula? And he said, well, I've seen it in row crops, but I've never seen it in turf. He goes, well, I got like fairways that I've sprayed with Roundup that have not, they, they don't even look like they've been touched. I was like, "Well, why don't we go look at your fairway real quick before I get in the truck and drive Interstate <laughs> 40 back to Knoxville?" And uh, it was it was it's a good eye... thing to bring up at the it, end it of was, the uh, It and was eye-opening it was eye opening, and uh, immediately I'm like, "I need to go get my uh, cup cutter, and we're going to take some plants <laughs> back. We're going to get started on this right away." Well, inevitably, I started to talk about that, and you know, you give presentations, and people come up and say, "Hey, I think I need you to come to my golf course. I might." I might have something you need to look at. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that kind of snowballed. And for a long time, that w- those were first reports, right? So from a research side, you know, that's something that's publishable. First report of resistance in, to this mode of action in this system. Well, you know, eventually the first reports go away, but the demand did not, uh, right? right? That, hey, I think I've got something going on. And that's what led to developing kind of this um, formalized approach to doing that sort of work. And I think it's also helpful to the superintendent that they can send something along, get a confirmation, and then get something on university letterhead to really say, hey, this is a situation and I need more resources from the club yep. to deal with this situation. Because then it's just not their their uh, word of mouth or you know their opinion. They've got something hard, evidence, factual to support them. And at the end of the day, that's what land-grant universities are for, right? It's to support uh, the turfgrass managers in what they're doing. And that's, so that's where we're at. Um, you know, we also do stuff with off-types in Bermuda grass because that's another really specialized um, need for the turfgrass industry uh, is off-type confirmation. And that's, an, that's been a, a large percentage of the work that's done in the Diagnostic Center too. So,
3: off-type confirmation on Bermuda grass greens. On the ultra-dwarfs, on yeah. The, on the ultra-dwarfs. And,
2: it's, and, it's, and it, it's... So,
3: you'll get the question, tell me what it is. Well, you can look at it and you're like, it's definitely not what that is. So, how does that translate into what you guys try? Can you tell somebody, this is Tiff Eagle, this is Champion, or what are the limit? What are the expectations and
2: limitations of what you you're, can do? You're, you're, you're exactly right, sir. And it's... it's all we can really do is tell you these two things are different, right? And I think that that's probably the fairest approach. I mean, when you get really deep into the genetic literature, these grasses are all from the 328 family. And the, the, the ultra dwarfs and the off-types included, they're all in that Tif green lineage. And it is really, really difficult, if not impossible, to genetically separate them from one another. Um, and I think for where we're at trying to help the practitioner, if, you know, if we're working with a golf course in Texas or Florida, we're not there and we don't know those greens as well as that golf course superintendent does. They know those greens and what we, what we ask superintendents to do that want to go this approach is say, okay, look, we want to get an off type confirmation. I want you to send me samples of what is your desirable grass, which you think is, this is what I want on my grains. Mm-hmm. And I want you to send me samples of the questionable grass. And I don't want you to give me any indicating label. I want you to label these one, two, three, four, yeah. A, B, C, D, doesn't matter. And then let us have these and we're gonna morphologically go through and characterize these and then run that data and give you, yes, they are statistically similar or no, they are statistically different. And then you could take that information and do with it what you want. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's that. That's that's the approach we've taken, and I think that again that that's been helpful because a lot of times it's just the superintendent saying I have a problem, asking for more support or resources, and it gives them something tangible to say. I had this looked at. This is different. This is a real thing. So how do we make adjustments for this problem? So, so no one should
3: send you something and expect something back that says. Sample A is Tiff Eagle. Sample
2: B is Tiff Dwarf. Correct. Right. Yeah, we, we cannot do that. good
1: okay. getting back on the on the goosegrass, another question about that. Uh, Pre options for rotation off of Ronstar. We um, we see a, a lot of our, our golf courses using Ronstar year in year out for goosegrass control mm-hmm. in the spring. Are there other equivalent options to Ronstar that can be used for? Uh, well, to one provide rotation, but for two the courses that may be um dealing with resistance issues is, is there mm-hmm. another option for them at this time
2: yeah i mean i think i mean certainly spectacle has efficacy for goosegrass control our data would speak to that um you know when you think about the dyanide whether it's you know uh, barricade or pendulum you know there's activity there it might not be what bronze star or spectacle is but there's certainly activity um i mean i think a lot of this I don't want to say issue, that's too strong of a word. A lot of the situation with Ronstar that is challenging is in regards to when it's applied. Uh, at least here in Tennessee, the decision to pull the trigger, if you will, on a Ronstar application is made more on when am I going to put out my non-selective and less on when am I going to position my Ronstar as close to the germination of, say, goosegrass as I can so it can be most impactful. Um, so one of the things that we really focused a lot on this year was granular systems uh, for Ronstar. I'm trying to deliver it as close as we can to goosegrass germination. I think that's that's part of the issue. Um, we have more work to do. I think to better understand that, but it's it's certainly a challenging one. And then when you get into more northern geographies, I mean, you know, my colleague Dr. Matt Elmore at Rutgers, yeah. you know, there. They're starting to see more dinethylanthranilin resistance in goosegrass in, in New Jersey and the Mid-Atlantic region, and they're now moving towards, hey, can we get, say, Ronstar on a granular North where it's not really used as much, mm-hmm. to help with those situations? So it's, it's a tricky one. Resistance issues are never, never easy.
1: Now, Dr. Elmore's had a couple of good years at his Rutgers field day of doing demonstration work with Ronstar on a granular carrier for yep. goosegrass control and. In New Jersey, and it's hard to believe that how far north goosegrass is beginning to migrate. You kind of see this migration of weed species.
2: Yeah, I mean, I remember at well, I did my undergraduate at Penn State and my PhD there. Uh, goosegrass wasn't there, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it just wasn't wasn't a, really an, an issue, and it certainly has made its way north. As has yeah. you know, the kalingas as well are certainly exploded throughout uh, the not only the Mid Atlantic but the Northeast. I mean, it's a certainly a national weed at this point
1: so what would you say are the most challenging weeds without a solution or with limited solutions outside of POa and that discussion
2: um, that's I mean it's a tricky one I think I think your favorite weeds on that list yeah. uh, dove weed you yeah, know dr. Atkinson here did his PhD on dove weed I kind of think that yeah. that's uh that's got to be on that list of, of difficult weeds yeah. to control where we have limited solutions and that's another one that's made its way north right Absolutely. that you know that used to be gulf coast only and is in the carolinas full bore it's in georgia full bore yeah, uh, sure is i mean we have it in tennessee uh, we don't have it in mass in tennessee but that's only a matter of time um uh, that's that's one where we we have a lot more work to do yeah
1: my next door neighbor's yard in carolina's is 75 percent double. So it's uh,
3: good it, coverage, yeah. Good coverage, great <laughs> research site. Great research. Well, site. What about the one that's presented to us here recently a couple times? Um, Kalinga on Greens, yep.
2: I think that's another one. I mean, I, I when, when I started at UT in 2008, it was hard to find a Kalinga research site. And as you all saw yesterday, we now have problems in some of our other weed test sites, whether it's crabgrass or Virginia buttonweed that there's too much Kalinga to, ap- to get an accurate reads on what we're trying to show. Sure. Um, it's, it has taken over our research farm and, and it's true on greens as well. And We don't have a lot of good solutions and there's not a lot labeled and I don't know that there will be a lot labeled because from a company liability standpoint, it's, that's pretty high dollar acreage yep. and I don't know that that's uh, something that folks will be willing to take on but it's, it's, it's on that problematic list for sure, sedge pre-emergent
3: what are your thoughts on the ability to have pre-emergent control with sedge
2: so i think it's worth trying um we have some tools you know uh echelon's the one that people probably think of uh the most uh right off the jump uh freehand has some pre-sedge activity uh pennant has some pre-sedge activity also um tower i guess would be in the same grouping as pre-sedge as well You know, the thing about pre-sedge that I think is tricky is when one thinks about pre-emergence weed control, what's the classical image in their head? It's crabgrass control. You see Mm -hmm. a pre-emergence crabgrass plot that works. Mm -hmm. You have a rectangle of clean crabgrass-free turfgrass and crabgrass outside the rectangle. And I don't know, based on the, the growth habit and pressure of sedge, that you get the same dynamic, so the, the the grading scale is a little bit different. You know, if somebody puts out a pre-sedge treatment, they think they're going to have no sedge plants, and I don't know that that's really achievable.
3: And, and uh, where, what is the point at which we're trying, with a, as it relates to a sedge, what is the growing point that we're trying to impact? Great, great
2: question. It's not a seed, right? That, that's a great question, and it's something that we don't have a really good answer for. You know, I think as an industry, we know for sure when to put out our pre-emergence crabgrass herbicides in spring. And I think we have a pretty good field pre goosegrass. It's it, it's a moving target pre sedge right? And I think that's an area where you know going back to you know using growing degree days or other sort of mm-hmm. uh, environmental data uh, to become more precise with what we're doing. That's certainly an opportunity to do that. Uh, is, is learn more about pre sedge because I mean you're right, Raymond. We don't we don't have a, a good starting point. We're trying to hit the, the tuber
3: ground I mean, I, back, I, mean will, will you,
2: I don't know yeah I mean and I think in concept it would be really hard to get herbicide absorption into a tuber. Uh, so the take is probably going to be greatest on maybe a newly emerging leaf from that tuber and when we think about uh, you know the VL VLFCAs very long chain VLCFAs, very long chain fatty acid inhibitors which, uh, you know, pennant would be one and tower would be another. Those are predominantly shoot absorbed compounds. So, you know, that would be something that we're trying to get into that emerging, uh, leaf as it comes out of the tuber. But as you well know, once it gets too big, the window to do that's really over.
3: How deep underground is the tuber?
2: Yeah. Good, great question. I mean, there's variability there too. Yeah. So it's, there's that's a, a tough one. It's a very tough one. Uh, that doesn't mean it's not worth trying. You know, if you think about, Take a golf course, for example. There's going to be certain areas on the golf course that maybe have more sedge pressure than others. You know, maybe that's something where putting a program into place with pre sedge on that hole or subset of holes makes sense. You know, it's another thing in this conversation about weed control programming. You like to tell superintendents you don't have to do the same thing to all 18, right? I mean, you can can site specific manage to try to make conditions as optimal as you can. and sometimes that helps from a budget standpoint, you know, if you wanted to go into something that's maybe a little bit more high dollar price point, you can't do it on all 18. Well, you could do it on nine mm-hmm. and then go on a lower budget program for the other nine and then flip it the next year. Um, you take it into sixes. I mean, you, however you wanted to go to get, to do that, you could. Good point. I like these, uh, alerts that you mentioned, uh, from one year to the next is so different it's mm-hmm. been 15 years at a club and we were talking yesterday and from the coldest to the coolest it was 18 degrees difference in the month of March for a high yep. think of the weed germination there well and the other thing about about site-specific or, or using data to become more precise is just look at geographic variability I mean your former club Lookout Mountain See. that is a very different environment than where we're at here in Knoxville and certainly different from say Chattanooga or or Jackson or Memphis mean because you're up on the mountain and I think to have Precision Timings for what you're going to do that can be put into play at different locations would help quite a bit
1: Yeah, one more tricky alternative question Uh, glyphosate okay right or wrong I'm not here to put that on the on the stand, but if someone is looking for an alternative to glyphosate whether that be renovation whether that be spot spraying uh, landscape beds um, any number of uses for glyphosate what are the alternatives and is there anything that is equivalent as an alternative to glyphosate in terms of
2: just efficacy yeah i mean it's 2019 might be called the year of the glyphosate questions yeah i mean it's it's been more glyphosate questions this year than my whole career combined and i think I think anyone in weed science would probably echo that. Um, alternatives, wise, there are alternatives. Um, you know, clufosinate would be one. Diquat would be another. Um, they have pluses and minuses themselves, as does glyphosate. Has pluses and minuses itself from an efficacy standpoint. I don't think. Either are going to be as effective in a single application across the width of the spectrum that glyphosate is effective on a lot of that's uh, translocation based Um, One of the issues that I try to Inform people about when they're having this conversation about something other than glyphosate is well keep in mind that whatever your rationale is for moving off a of glyphosate wh- whether it's resistance related that's one that's a biologically based rationale but maybe it's pressure from non-biological places that is making this be a need um you know the alternatives that are out there they're they're inevitably going to be higher use rate right you know you think about uh for using glufosinate branded as finale that's a six quart per acre application um, compared to glyphosate being whatever your glyphosate product is, probably somewhere in the ballpark of 16 to 32 ounces per acre versus six quarts. Um, and reward, uh, Diquat, you know, whether it's branded as reward, same deal. I mean, it's a high use rate product compared to glyphosate. And then the other thing to keep in mind here, if the motivation for the switch maybe isn't biologically based, is that you know, none of us are toxicologists, but I think we all have an appreciation for what toxicologists do, and we understand the principles of acute toxicity and LD50 values and whatnot. You know, those are not chronic exposure, they're acute exposure, but the alternatives, by and large, if we we judge things on acute toxicity, are gonna be more hazardous than glyphosate, right? That's the
3: irony to this whole thing, is moving from glyphosate to something else means more chemical, more often. Mm-hmm. Is that fair to say? I, I think
2: that's very fair to say. And you know, the, the position that UT has taken, and this has not just been a turf position, it's been a really a University of Tennessee extension position, is that glyphosate's labeled for weed management in our state. And we really believe in that labeling process and, and the, the review process that all herbicides go through with EPA uh, not only to get an initial label, but also through re-registration review. We are firm believers in everything that goes along with that. And until it's not a labeled herbicide in our state, we have no reason to change our opinion that people should use this. You know, it is a labeled technology and use it in accordance with the label in a manner that best fits your operation. And, and that's kind of that.
3: Is the success of, of the glyphosate molecule because it does translocate to the roots and none of the other alternatives really have that full extent of translocation.
2: I think that's part of it. I mean, I'm by no means a a glyphosate expert, but I mean, I do think the translocation piece is pretty important and, you know, we had a great talk yesterday at Field Day, our department head, uh, we're lucky, our department head, Dr. Scott Sensman, former president of the Weed Science Society of America, current chairman of the WSSA, uh, subcommittee on glyphosate, you know, came out to field day and talked about this issue. And, you know, we've tried to be proactive with educating people. And, and I think, you know, for the, for the turf grass industry, the important part here is to not be afraid to have this conversation, you know, I, because the science and the facts are on your side, right? When you have this conversation, that doesn't mean the conversation's to be easy and it might be real uncomfortable but don't be afraid to have it because all of the science and facts are out there and i think one of the things that we need to do more of in the turf community is provide some education and training maybe about how to have that conversation because that's a really different skill set than how do i take doveweed out of my my bermuda grass yard or how do i manage brown patch my tall fescue lawn i mean that's that is a different skill set and there's folks out there with with you know the training to do that i'd love to see more of that in our industry because i think it would help it would help us in academia i think it would help the practitioners in whatever aspect of the industry they're in whether it's golf sod uh athletic fields lawn care it's just communications everything
1: absolutely absolutely well you guys have anything else that's uh I'll have them all list.
3: Quick tip on post-emergent dove weed: if you know, put on the spot. Hey, I got dove weed in Bermuda. I don't know if that's that's the you know right combination. I think if I think
2: it put on the spot, my answer might be call Jeff Atkinson. <laughs> 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 but he's this, here, well, uh, so let's you know. Uh, I just, think as you alluded to, there's a number of options. This is the
3: lightning round. This is lightning. post-emergent yeah. oh, dove weed. Yeah,
1: I. There are a number on, now. There's been some new technologies that have been come to market since I was in the thick of my, my research but at the time there's a number of options um, Celsius tribute total speed zone surge um, atrazine simazine, that all provided some level of control but I think the difficulty in control for doveweed uh, for anybody who has it the knows is just the re-germination and regrowth following an application um, of any one of those any one of those uh, solutions the approach that did work best kind of going back to the pre plus post applications was a combination of a post plus a pre um, And most of our trial work spectacle seemed to be the product or indaziflam seemed to be the product that had the best performance over the widest range of trials um, but in combination with the post application seemed to be the most effective management strategy
2: yeah I, mean, I think that's right i mean i i i don't do I don't do a lot of dove work here because we don't have a test site and we don't have it in mass enough in Tennessee to (laughs) um, to uh, really get a good research grade area to do work on. But we will, and when that time comes, we'll do a lot more work on it. Um, So yeah, so far, I mean, you you really you've really communicated what we tell people is that you should talk to folks who have worked on this more, and if you review what they've done you got to have a solid pre and there's a number of post cleanups and be prepared for it to be a long battle. Yep. All right. Lightning round
3: question number two, post, emer- post application control goosegrass.
2: So I would say number one, it depends what turf you're in, right? Bermuda so- grass. I guess I'm, I'm, always, I'm always thinking of a backdrop of Bermuda grass just
3: because of my Southern predisposition. So I, guess. I mean, I can speak just You know,
2: trial work for us, uh, things that come to the top, I mean, revolver comes up to the top pretty regularly, tribute total comes up to the top uh, pretty regularly. You know, those are um, standbys that we have chatter about ALS resistance in goosegrass. We have not confirmed that. We had one sample come to us in the diagnostic center uh, as kind of putative resistant to the ALS inhibitors. And at least in the first look at it, we're repeating it now to make sure uh, it was not it was it was not uh, resistant to that chemistry. Would but, you add anything to it, a
3: sulfentrazone, dismiss, something to I know that heat that's it up a little I bit? I mean, I
2: know that that's done, and I think that there's some merit to, to doing that. Um, you know, one of the things we featured a lot at Field Day yesterday uh, was combinations of Speed Zone and Pylex. That's been uh, one of, if not the most, uh, impressive post emergence treatment for us this summer. Uh you know, speed zone has labeling at four pints per acre by itself. Uh and then one of the things we see about that though is that you usually need sequentials, and the label kind of limits you based on the 2-4D load and speed zone on how tight you can make those sequential applications. It's four weeks, right? Yes. Weeks and right. adding some pilex to that at the rates that are labeled for spot treatment goosegrass control in Bermuda has really helped kind of ramp up the activity. And it also, the combination lessens the bleaching of the pilex on the Bermuda grass. So we kind of went really deep on that this summer and we'll continue to do more of that uh, next year to kind of proof that concept out uh, in a little bit more detail. But I think that is certainly uh, an interesting approach. And the other thing I'll share on goosegrass, we, we did this project last year uh, and this was really striking where it just kind of, I was playing golf one day and Saw a bunch of goosegrass at the end of you know like a cart path exit point. You know soil is really compacted and just just everything was really dry and you know that's very typical where you see goosegrass. And started thinking, well, maybe there's some plant adaptation to being in that environment that's going to make our post-emergence herbicides struggle. So we did this project and we said, okay, let's grow goosegrass in soils of different moisture content and let's not just set them to one level and start the experiments, let them acclimate to that soil moisture content. So we grew goosegrass in soils uh, less than 12% volumetric. Then we had uh, really wet soil, so greater than 20% volumetric, and then kind of an intermediate range of, we'd keep them anywhere between that 12 and 20. And we let them acclimate for three weeks, and then we sprayed everything labeled for post-emergence goose grass control, warm or cool season turf and the results were staggering when you put those products out full label on plants in soils less than 12 percent volumetric we didn't have a herbicide control goose more than 20 percent wow you put it in the plants that were grown in the well watered state and the things that come to the top that you would expect come to the top like the tribute totals and revolvers of the world they did and it was a striking difference with soil moisture content Interesting. So we're following that up now. Uh, you know, the recommendations to the end users this year have been: well, number one, use your head, right? If if you're kicking up dust when the sprayer's going out there to spray, maybe this isn't the best use of your uh, chemical resources. Yep. And number two, you have moisture meters now on your on your golf carts. Go out there and, and probe and see, and if if you're reading twelve or even thirteen or fourteen let's do it a different day. Yeah. Right. Let's, let's, let's try to make this position, the technology to be as impactful as it can. And I know that that mirrors with a lot of things that you all do, like Brandon Horvath, my colleague has a trial with you all where there's baseline fertility programs and a fungicide program. And the whole concept is, well, let's get the turf to a point where it's optimal. So the Fungicide technology can be as impactful as it possibly can be, and the, the same is true for weeds too. So, we've been following that now. We've got a drought, um, a drought stress physiologist on our uh, faculty here. Uh, she works predominantly with row crop systems, but she's real interested in this goosegrass project. She, she's been furthering that work now to try to understand well what's the acclimation, like what happens when you put the goosegrass in that dry soil that impedes. The efficacy of, of those post-emergence So it gets to get a
3: better efficacy, make the plant fat and happy, exactly. and, and then zap it yeah. out of nowhere. Well, and, <laughs> the, and the thing is, like,
2: so inevitably the next question is, well, can I just irrigate the night yeah. before? And yeah. I don't know, Right. but I'll tell you, I don't think that's going to do it. I get that question a lot because huh? it takes time for those acclimations to kick in, like. It doesn't get dry overnight, and the plant is acclimated to the dry environment. It takes time for that to happen. Sure. So one would think to reverse that is going to take time for the reverse to happen. Um, that's something. That's an area for more work for sure. So it's more about maybe preconditioning for maximal efficacy. So real quick, quickfire two B goosegrass and cool season turf. So one of the nice things about that speed zone label is that it is cool season and warm season base. Um, there you go. Based, so that's that's pretty useful. I would say that Pylex in cool season turf is probably the go-to uh, number one, just because we're not going to be rate limited. You know, the Pylex uh, label I think it goes it like, goes over an ounce for sure, and it may even go up to two. I'm not 100% on that right now without having it in front of me. But that's a really effective herbicide on goosegrass based on our trial work. So that that would be one. I mean, there's there's other other tools out there. I don't mean to leave anybody out, but Data-wise, that would come to the top pretty quickly. Is Pilex
3: a different mode of action than Revolver?
2: Yes. Pilex is an HPPD inhibitor, uh, so it's a bleacher. gives us that characteristic bleaching symptom uh, in Revolver's So it might be inhibitor. a good a rotation, good rotation Yeah, I know Dr. Elmore, we referenced earlier. One of his biggest concerns is use of Pilex is so uh, widespread in, in his market that they're going to have pilex resistant goosegrass eventually. He's a northern. He's, he's, he's yeah. at Rutgers. And Rutgers. Yeah. I think he's right to be concerned about that, and and maybe some proactive thinking now and lessons learned on Poa will help with that chemistry on goosegrass and other places. Yep. and Klinga. So I mean, I wish I had more than more than um, two things to offer, um, but really we've got a suite of ALS inhibitors that have activity and we've got the Dismiss and Dismiss NXT of the world and sulfentrazone that's a PPO inhibitor and it's pretty limited after that Um, you know we have done a lot of work with Solero over the past few years and particularly on Kalinga uh, at the higher end of the rate range that's that's done really well for us Um, we have a nice project now going back to this piece about precision application collaborative effort with Tennessee and Rutgers about Kalinga application timing Cause that's another one of these weeds that it's kind of wide open of when do I treat and could we find a window where efficacy would be maximized? So we have growing degree day timings throughout the year and then a cooling degree day timing in the fall, uh, where we're putting out Solero, uh, Sedgehammer and dismiss NXT and we'll track it into 2020 and say, okay, of all those timings, where was our population reduction, the greatest. Um, so that's ongoing Good. and that's been kind of cool because usually with growing degree day type trials, it's get to a benchmark of accumulation and then make an application. But Matt and I in designing this said, well, you know, that might not make sense because everybody has experience in spring, your summer, you, you know, you have a hot week and then that's followed by a colder week. And then maybe that's kind of an intermediate week, then a hot week again, that 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 accumulation of heat is not linear throughout the year. And maybe we would be better served to say, let's time these applications when we're getting a certain number of growing degree days in a week, right? So our timings have been like 100 growing degree days in a week, Mm -hmm. 175 growing degree days in a week, more than 200 growing degree days in a week to try to say, okay, we're gonna put this out in a really hot period uh, or a cooler period. And I think that's a trend of where growing degree day-based work might go, uh, is rather than using accumulation benchmarks, it's more uh, tracking it kind of normalized by week or by unit time. Uh, which speaks again to the need for alerts for the end user of we're into the window where now it's time to maybe do this.
3: Crabgrass post, we didn't talk about that one. No, crabgrass. Crabgrass post.
2: So, in Bermuda, I assume, Raven, we'll
3: yep. talk Florida yep. here. Yep. Uh,
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I got another weed too, that I want to ask you about, too, so let's. let's. So, I mean, I think for us, um, I, I make a joke with Aaron Patton. Aaron Patton had me go to their conference and said, I want you to talk about post-emergence crabgrass control. When I started my presentation, I said, your most effective post-emergence crabgrass option is to have a really good pre program. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that that's right at some level. Yeah. Uh, no, we have more them. we have more tools in the toolbox pre maybe than we do post. So to put again, to put the metal capital in, to have a really good pre base is just going to make that post ask easier. Um, you know, I think drive is certainly a go-to for a lot of people. Uh, we have a lot of quinclorac containing products now. Uh, Solitaire is one, and yeah. I'm sure there are many others, Quinceps another, uh, that I'm leaving out. And that's true for both warm and cool season. That's gonna to be across like the board, warm and cool season. You know, as as you know, you can get a little bit of injury on the Bermuda grasses with um, quinclorac applications at, at the wrong time. I think a lot of that is transient injury The mows off. It's not anything that's gonna be lethal. Mm-hmm. And there's tons of cultivar variability and environmental variability around that that I don't know we understand. Uh, as well as we ought to. Syngenta's new herbicide manuscript, we've worked with this now for three years on crabgrass. It's done really well for us, particularly on smooth crabgrass. Uh, moving it into large crabgrass, um, it's been different. You know, it's still still a good option and effective tool, but the trends that we see on smooth don't really mirror perfectly what we see on large. Uh, why that is, I'm not sure. I mean, uh, gut feeling, I think. Just the pubescence and hairy nature of what a large crabgrass plant has—that's yep. got to do something to product absorption. Yep. Um, but those, you know, those come to mind right now uh, for you in Florida. Obviously, MSMA, even on a spot treatment basis, isn't going to be uh, not an something anymore. Us. Yeah. You know, we still have it now in in spot treatment regimes, but it uh, ain't going to be around forever, if you ask me. Yep. Um, I know it's it's to be determined, but I think as an industry we've kind of moved beyond that and that's that's where we are
3: okay I'll give you a, another Florida one that I've been I get on a regular basis do you have any experience with torpedo grass
2: I do not have experience with torpedo grass I, I have seen it uh, in Hawaii when I was at Hawaii but for control I would be uh, just regurgitating things that no one maybe in Florida has a long time good experience ago. controlling it. So, that's, so yeah, <laughs> that's the, I, I'd say that's call
3: okay. call Brian Unruh on that yeah. one. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so you mentioned Hawaii, and I can't go back to Florida without at least trying to ask you a question about weed control and past Okay. You, you were in. Imagine you may have some passpalum experience. A
2: little bit. It's a little dated and a little foggy yeah. um, since since when I was at Hawaii in 2007 and 2008.
3: But uh, any thoughts on opportunities uh, for the guys with passpalum? I know they're using anything from rock salt to some so, of the stuff we've already mentioned.
2: But. So I think we have more passpalum labels than maybe we did 10 years ago, and that's good. Yep. Um, You know, I know when I was at Hawaii one of the big drivers research-wise was, I don't have anything that's labeled. And that doesn't mean the things that, that have labeling for Bermuda grass won't work. It's just that we don't know. Uh, so I think we've moved now to a place where we have more options labeled for past and that's good. Um, you, you brought up the salt concept, which is something that I actually worked on a lot in Hawaii and that's, it's fascinating. Um, I can remember. So we had a project, it was with a paspalum species. In Hawaii, they called it hilo-grass, in other parts of the world, they call it sourgrass. Uh paspalum conjugatum. And if there's anybody listening from Hawaii, they know that we can take over a golf course. It can take over roughs really quickly. Wow. And so we worked on sourgrass control and goosegrass control in Paspalum with traditional herbicides, and that was salt. And the idea, in talking to some superintendents that had had some success with salt, was all salt is not salt, right? So maybe there would be something to particle size, maybe there's something to spread rate. It's wide open in terms of what's an effective application rate, what's an effective application timing, do we need a single application, do we need to, it was all over the board. So. I can remember new faculty. Uh, if, if you live in Honolulu, you have a Costco membership. That's just a you, you, you <laughs> have a to. Life. You have <laughs> to. Uh, you know, a and yeah, a Costco membership. I know. I, <laughs> a for I, I realize <laughs> no. I realized no free ads, but I mean that's just part of being a, a resident in Honolulu, Hawaii. Is is Costco's a thing? And I oh, cool. um, went into Costco and bought pallets of salt. I mean pallets of salt for this work because like. We were dealing with rates of like 10 pounds per thousand square foot or higher. Oh man. And that was all based out of, okay, what is the salinity of ocean water? And then let's look at that as a baseline, maybe an X rate. And now let's try to go above and below that X rate to do some titrations to get where um, we needed to be. And the guy at Costco goes, aren't you forgetting the fries? Cause I mean, I had like two pallets of salt with me, it was, it, was, it was hilarious, but anyway, I mean, what we found in doing that was that obviously finer, uh, salt par- salts of a finer particle size performed better than a coarser textured salt. Um, and that was from just like any granular herbicide right. post. for you have a better chance of sticking to the leaf cause you got a smaller, uh, lighter particle. You had to make the applications in the morning. Uh, you had to have pretty high rates, and sequentials did better. Um, and then the other part of it was it was really effective on sour grass, it was not effective on goosegrass. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we could burn leaf tissue on goosegrass, but we could not really get to the crown of the plant. Uh, I know the weed scientist there, Dr. Joe DeFrank, really well, and we talked about. You know, one of the things is maybe you get complementary where you could burn the exterior, you know, have a, use the foliage to your advantage to come in to get absorption and translocation of a, of a systemic herbicide. And then once it was in there doing its thing, working on the apical meristem, you could come in with salt to try to knock the foliage out. So you'd just be left with that crown. We didn't really vet that concept out in the detail that was warranted, but it was a cool idea nonetheless. Um, it... It, it's it's interesting. I think the other thing that's important is that it's not for every site. So uh, one of the sites we worked at um, in Hawaii, where it's set up really well, was uh, a club Koala Golf Course, which was on um, kind of a the um, the windward side of the island uh, on Oahu, and. I mean, it's like a tropical rainforest type environment i mean the amount of rainfall that they had was unbelievable so we didn't have really to worry about buildup of of that sodium in our soil because we were continually flushing that through you put that into play and on the wrong soil and make that your go-to treatment you're going to build up some problems that right. are going to be really hard to get rid of so it is it is by no means a a if it's not will. a blanket yeah.
3: recommendation. You have to take into context the other environmental exactly.
2: factors. And I know, so you know, going back before we leave, leave salt. Um, a good friend of mine and wife, Les Jeremiah, um, he was a superintendent uh, on Lanai when I was there. Um, at, there's two golf courses on Lanai: uh, the challenge at Manele and the experience at Coele, And they're really nice places. And his assistant kind of came up with a protocol for goosegrass control with salt. And for lack of a better description, it was you basically buried individual plants. And and that was effective, it worked, but there's a lot of labor resource in doing that, a lot of time. I mean, I don't think that's anything that would be at scale, but it's it's one situation where I did see success from a practitioner. It's the ultimate using spot that. treat. It was a literal spot treat. Make it snow on that yeah goose grass plant. Yeah.
3: Good. Final, my thought, quick touch on the importance of adjuvants. Okay. Just, you know, follow the label recommendation. Uh, any, you, do you have any, any of your own persuasions as it relates to the methylated seed oils or those types of things? Uh, sure,
2: know. no, it's, it's a great question about adjuvants. And and it's funny, Dr. Horvath and I, uh, when we were kind of debriefing yesterday after field day, this came up in one of his talks, and, and we both agreed that there's probably a lot more work to do to understand this. Um, you know, he had somebody talk to him about adjuvant koC values when they talk about um, things that uh, are a pusher or things that keep things in soil and I had never heard of that before hmm. and I think that there's attributes to adjuvants that we don't understand enough about that if we learned more about them we could better design programs for them to be impactful um, and certainly as a general rule herbicide wise we, we tend to see herbicides work better with an adjuvant applied um, but not all adjuvants are created equal and I don't really know enough to tell you this one's better than this one or what's the positive advantage of a particular adjuvant versus another. We do have a lot more work to do on it. You know, one of the things that's interesting, I'll speak to this just because we talked about manuscript a minute ago, uh, that has a proprietary adjuvant with it. Uh, I'm going to probably butcher the pronunciation, adagor, I believe, uh, and that is one where in in kind of the r d uh testing of panoxin and we looked at a lot of different adjuvants and it it is wildly different with adagor than it is without adagor and why i have no idea but it's wildly different mm-hmm. so there's something in there in that adjuvant makeup that um helps the herbicide work better yeah. and, and there's just more to do but and i think in the fungicide world it's true also you know uh brandon had a former phd student jesse benelli working on adjuvants and fungicides because you know you think about it for Mm -hmm. pathogens that may be active in the thatch or soil active pathogens we got to get those fungicides down in there to do what they're meant to do and that's something that's not really thought of and i know jesse had really great success um with Rhizoc and using uh, adjuvants to push fungicides down to become more active uh, on the pathogens that they were trying to control. Um, so yeah, a lo- lot more on adjuvants and to we, learn. we tell our our users just
3: pay attention to the labels and if they recommend a non ionic or fact, just make sure you include that in there just to to help improve the efficacy of whatever it is you're you're applying. Yeah. You know? What about the pH of the water?
2: That's another factor, um, and yeah, that's something you know we talked earlier about. We had a uh, goosegrass plant, a goosegrass sample submitted to the diagnostic center, putative resistant. They wanted to go through the whole resistance screening process, and we did that. And at least in the first look, came back as susceptible. Um, and we're repeating it now to make sure. But the pH is something that's going to affect a lot of our different herbicides, uh, ALS inhibitors included. Um, and it, it is, it needs to be checked because I don't think we can assume that, oh, well, I'm just going to get my spray solution tank water here and it's going to be good. Uh, it needs to be checked and I don't know that it's checked enough because, um, disassociation of some of our weak acid herbicides is a real thing. Uh, and it can compromise that activity quite a bit. Good. Well, Jim, we appreciate your time. It's a lot of
1: good information. we yeah. covered a lot of topics.
3: I'm going to listen, re- listen to this again that's for sure.
1: Try to try to remember some of these topics that we covered. So
2: yeah, I appreciate you guys having me on and, yeah. and making the trip to Knoxville, and appreciate Harrells for being a, you know, a diamond sponsor of Field Day, sponsoring the event at the highest level. I mean that that helps a lot. Those events like Field Day are not, they can't be what they are without industry support uh, from sponsorship. So sincerely appreciate everything you do to help uh, help mm-hmm. events like Field Day grow. You're welcome. And we really appreciate and value the, the value
1: that you bring to our industry as a collective industry the support that you guys provide. Thank you. So. Well, thanks for joining us for another episode of Turf Dudes. I'm Jeff Atkinson. We'll see you next time.
0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of Turf Dudes. Send Dr. Atkinson and the Herald's Turf Dudes team your questions or comments or to be featured in an upcoming episode, reach out to us at Turf Dudes on Twitter or by email to turfdudes at heralds.com. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Google Play Music or tune in directly at www.turfdudes.com. Turf Dudes is spelled T-U-R-P-H-D-U-D-E-S.